Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. All right, that music could tell you something or nothing. Let's go with something, though. Let's say, just take a flyer on something. So we, we are going to talk today about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. It's the second installment in what we now know is a three-part uh, installment. Things tend to come in threes these days. We've been taught to eat trilogies, uh, and this is one. Uh, it is not like other movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe in many, many respects, starting with the fact that it is. It is, with a couple of notable exceptions, not live action. Uh, It is animation. But to say it's animation is almost kind of misleading. I should let the panelists do all this. But anyway, it is – it's animated in just such a wildly imaginative, collagist style. Uh, And uh, in terms of the plot, you know, actually I don't really think I could summarize the plot. (laughs) But uh, before we introduce the panel – um, let's hear a little bit about what it sounds like anyway. And actually, you'll hear a little bit of setup of some of the plot here. Kat, this is – oh, let me just say, so you're going to hear um, the character of Miles Morales introduced in the first movie. He is a Spider-Man, not necessarily the, the Spider-Man. Uh, Shamik Moore voices him. You'll hear Haley Steinfeld as the voice of another spider person uh, known as Gwen Stacy. Here we go. See a face in the Parisian. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. The Mona Lisa. There's an elite society. With all the best spider people in it? Okay, so there's this lady, Jess Drew. Uh-huh. She rides a motorcycle. motorcycle. Oh my gosh, I'm learning so much from her. Oh yeah, I, I've learned a lot of stuff too. I've leveled up my whole thing. Oh yeah? Let's see that. Let's go. Thread the needle. Oh. 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 And if I could remind if you could remind me And Miguel, the whole thing was his idea. Right. And who's Miguel? Oh, he's like a ninja vampire Spider-Man, but a good guy? A vampire good guy. I'd pay good money to see that. So how long ago did they invite you? Uh, only like a few months ago. Months is kind of a long time, isn't it? Okay, this one counts for two. All of my feels were already dead. And if I could rewind if you could rewind Look at you. Look at me. And so, as I think uh, the voicing suggests, this is all happening, I believe, as they're swinging through New York, which they do a lot. I mean, like from webs, that kind of swinging. Anyway, let me introduce the panel. Otherwise, there's a risk that I will just talk for the whole time. Uh, Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian, writer, and the host of the Nobody Asked Sean, S-H-A-W-N podcast. He and I currently have our own sort of Spider-Verse thing going on where there's some confusion about who's identities in whose body and stuff like that. I don't know. I think we might let that one go today. He sustained it so well the last time. I don't know that I could uh, I could uh, commit to it as, as solidly. Tracy Wu Fastenberg is development officer at Connecticut Children's. Uh, I don't know which Spider-Verse she lives in and what her identity is there. Bill Usman is professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. So it's hard to know where to start. But Sean... I mean, this movie is so many different things. And I, one thing that is suggested by the clip, although nowhere near fleshed out, 
it is at its heart, among other things, a love story. It's a love story between these two people who are kind of iterations of the same idea from different parts of the multiverse, uh, you know, and and just a lot of very, very colorful obstacles are being thrown in their way. But I don't know. What's what's the beating heart of the movie for you? Well, I think it's uh, the, re- the relationships. Like, so much of when we talk about the Spider-Verse movies particularly, it's about the just, like, otherworldly advanced uh, techniques of animation that no one's really trying. Um, but, like, I think what really makes the first Spider-Verse movie and this one uh, succeed that, the way they do is that, like, you actually care about the relationships that they build. So then when, when like, the dramatic things happen, like, uh, when, like all the, like, Spider-Verse stuff is not as important as what's happening between Miles and Gwen, Miles and uh, Peter B. Parker. Like, they develop such a great relationship that when all... Uh, you don't really, like, have to get bogged down in, like... Uh, like who from what universe and all that stuff like this there's a pretty like uh direct story in some way yeah and i think one thing and and we're going to go to to you next tracy we fastenberg because you have i think you've drank the least amount of spider venom uh, over the course of your <laughs> life and uh and you're not imbued with all this stuff and so there's a hundred and fifty different Easter eggs in here, and callbacks to different things, and uh, as Sean is suggesting, representations of uh, of ideas that have been floated around in comic books over the years. And as far as I'm concerned, as long as you've watched the first movie into the Spider Verse, the first of these animated movies, you're fine. You don't really need to know anything else. These are movies where you kind of assemble your own enjoyment out of the parts that you find that you like the most that are sitting on a very cluttered table. So I would almost make the argument that you don't need to see the first one to appreciate this one to a certain level also. And I will say, first of all, any of those Easter eggs rolled right on by me and smashed in the corner because I definitely didn't notice any. Um, But it's been so long since I had seen the first one um, that I I didn't remember a whole lot of it. Um, I think I remembered a spider ham and I remembered Miles. And so (laughs) after watching this one, I watched the first 20 minutes of Into the Spider-Verse and was like, oh yeah, I remember really liking this, which I also watched for this show. Um, but yeah, I would say that there's so many enjoyable pieces here. And of course there are parts where I'm like, I'm not exactly sure what they're talking about, but you get the general idea and you're not missing so much that you can't sit there and enjoy the entire movie. I think Sean's exactly right. It's about all these different relationships and the interesting iterations and commonalities and differences between all of the different versions of spider people, Sp- spiders, spider, spider there, there's dinosaurs, there's all kinds of yeah, stuff. Yeah, there's, there's everything. <laughs> there's cowboys, there's, you know. I think spider, spider beings, I think maybe is the, the more beings, inclusive that, term. I think yeah. that's a very, very good way of putting it. Um, but visually, it's so entertaining. And I think, you know, you had pointed out in our conversations before that it's art. It really is art. You know, some of it looks like watercolor, some of it looks like different types of art. It's just really visually appealing and it keeps you entertained. I'm pretty sure I could stick my four-year-old in front of it who would have very little idea what's going on and he'd be mesmerized just by the pure visual spectacle. Yeah, although he might say, Mom, didn't Spider-Pig go to rehab or something? He seems like he's (laughs) off drugs now. Um, So um, that's a John Mulaney joke. He's the voice of the Spider-Pig. So um, (laughs) that's an Easter egg. Bill Usman, you know, I mean, from a media studies point of view, this is really interesting because to to Tracy's point, it really is like you're watching a lot of different things. I, I feel like it's so great that it's set in New York or or the version of New York where 
it's also India, one of the many places that they go, because it feels like a thing you'd have to go to New York to see. You know, you go to New York and you see the thing at MoMA or the thing way downtown yeah. where there's multimedia going on and there's different styles uh, that don't seem to belong together and somehow or other through collage and pastiche they are made to do that. And there's this certain kind of humming energy in the sense that something very bold and different is happening. And, and you know, from a media studies point of view, you think, wow, is this – are they showing us where the bar is now? Is it in kind of in a different place? Uh, is is Are certain things not going to be enough anymore? But I, I'd love to just – whatever your take is about anything. I think it's definitely setting the bar for superhero comic book movies because, you know, for one, I, I could see a public radio audience, for example, not casting aspersions – saying, why should I be interested in this comic book, in this superhero movie? But it really is, as you say, a a, a work of art that I, I think is maybe the best. I, I would I think of this and the first one together as you know one thing and then the the one that's coming clearly taking them together really kind of the best articulation of what these superhero movies can be and what makes them like really interesting no matter if you have a relationship to these comic books or not I do um and I remember years and years and years ago Marvel started putting this little slogan on the the covers of their comic books calling them pop art so every Marvel comic book you know would have like the little Marvel logo and the little character picture and then underneath it it would say pop art and they really were trying to carve out that you know this isn't just for kids you know take us seriously at least you know, to a, to a certain extent. And this really, really does carry it to that level. You mentioned, you know, MoMA. I, I said to Lori, as you know, after the movie, I could see there being an exhibit at MoMA based on these films and just all of the different styles of animation that are so exciting when they're brought together. Uh, you said collage. In media studies, we try to make things very, you know, highfalutin and complicated. So we might say bricolage, but it <laughs> essentially we're, we're making the same argument. It's this postmodern bringing together of everything, everywhere, all at once, dare I say, uh, which it also kind of has a nod to as well in terms of this idea of the metaverse. Yeah, either either one of them nods to the other. I, I think we could have a debate about what starts nodding first. But, mm -hmm. um, but Sean... I mean, I, 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 one thing that I, I, I'm prepared to get into a fight with somebody about, but not with you because you're going to say the same thing, I think, which is it's almost a mistake to start talking about superheroes and start talking about animation. You know, Sean Fennessy over at The Ringer said this is the first five-star movie of 2023. And I, I haven't – like I didn't see Super Mario Brothers, so I'm not really sure whether that's true or not. But um, – but this is just a great movie. Uh, I, I'm uh, almost uncomfortable suggesting that we need to talk about it in terms of comic book adaptations or in terms of animation. There's something going on here that just really kind of transcends all of that. That's an absolutely great point. Um, Guillermo del Toro has been, uh, you know, he did the um, animated Pinocchio on Netflix last year, and he's been talking a lot about and banging his drum about how, like, animation is cinema. It's, it's sometimes treated as if... Uh, it's 
like so, sort of like just for children and also like like sort of a, a lesser form of the art form. But I think uh, these two movies in particular, and I'm assuming the third one will be just as good, if not better, uh, like show like that, like we've all been saying, like this is actual art. And it's like, it's my favorite thing about these movies is that they're pushing the art form forward. Like Super Mario Brothers, even if you did like, not even just an assessment of it as like a quality film, but just the animation itself, they're not really trying to do anything new. And with, I, I wrote a piece about this on my Substack. Subscribe to Feeling Fine on Substack. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, about how this movie, this is not the most technologically advanced uh, uh, animation. Like Pixar has been doing so much with like photorealism. Like there's so many amazing looking, uh, like almost real, like in Toy Story 4. That movie looks amazing. Like, um, but they're, they're trying something different. This movie is doing like, a, uh, a lesser form of animation in terms of like technologically like advanced computing, but is um, doing something way more interesting in terms of like pushing like the limits of what animation can even do. If that makes any sense, like, yes, I love the Spider Verse movies because like they this could never happen in live action. It could like none of it would work in live action, and that's its strength. You know what I mean? It's like it's it's it almost like renders the live action movies like uh like useless because it's like you could do so much more interesting things in this form why would you even try to do it in that form but it also i don't know how many other um you know this is a pretty large team of people that work on these films but how many other people could make it as good as this yeah That's probably the issue and i think a lot of some of the success also involves with an, uh, an, an intentional violation of any convention or canon of animation for example this is just one of we could come up with 150 of these but it's one of the ones that jumps out at you there's a character named Hobie who is voiced by Daniel Kaluuya but he's not animated this he he looks like he's cut out from a zine he's a punk mm. rock spider man he's got a guitar slung over his back uh, you know he, he doesn't look anything like the rest of the animation he, I mean he really is what we tend to call a bricolage uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to trying that out, see how it sounds. So, yeah, I think you know you do that well. Yeah, some you of, wear that well. So, some of their success is just that they are not going to play by any set of rules. The rule they're playing with is we're going to well, we could try anything. But Tracy, there I, even yeah. is some live action inserted yes. here and there, yes. which mm -hmm. is also really exciting. Yes, you get a little cameo from Daniel Glover. You get the, a woman from the Ven Venom movies. Yeah, there's live action there. But Tracy also, there's so many things that you kind of want to keep track of that are good about this, and they don't all belong in the same bag. And I think it's worth talking about some of the voice work here. I mean, starting with Shamik Moore and Haley Steinfeld. Haley Steinfeld, by the way, now has two Marvel-related franchises. She is the new Hawkeye in the Disney Plus series. She's really good and really funny in that, too. And she's terrific as Gwen Stacy. Shamik Moore, these, this is acting. You know, Brian Tyree Henry as Miles's father is this is acting. It's acting you can get done way faster than you have to than if you have to sit around on a movie set for days <laughs> and days. But I mean to me, I am struck by in those more intimate kind of chamber style scenes how good the acting is, how real the characters become even though they look kind of crazy on screen. It's phenomenal. Really, because I mean, that's what really drew me into the movie were these conversations, these interactions, and that's all their voice work, right? The the animation was lovely. It was great. But you could probably close your eyes. You don't want to because it's all so beautiful and still get the same emotion and it would still evoke those same feelings of sympathy and empathy or anger, frustration that you would if it were 
a live action piece. And I, I think what also they conveyed so well is, and I mentioned this, I really love like teenage angst type of things. And maybe I just never got over my own teenage angst, <laughs> but you know, in the first movie with the, with the middle school, you just kind of feel that so in your soul. And then here that kind of that tearing apart of, you know, what your priorities are, the choices you make, which for most teenagers are, are on a less, you know, galactic scale. Um, but you really feel that. And it's it's just such a great conveyance of those emotions and all through the voice work. And I do also have to say that I've just learned from looking at IMDb that Haley Steinfeld was also in Pitch Perfect 2 and 3, yeah. which are um, among my top guilty pleasures. Also the remake of True Grit. She's done a lot of great work. But um, yeah, so Bill, you know, because we are sort of the oldsters on this um, – you know, I mean, it is sort of true. I had started out as a kid in the 60s reading ba DC comic books, especially Batman. And, you know, Batman and Superman, I mean, they've got their problems. Like Clark Kent, don't get no respect. He can never get no respect. He has to act like this kind of milk toast. And, you know, Superman's parents are, you know, gunned down in an alley and all this. Kind of, Batman's uh, parents are gunned down in an alley. And But basically, Batman's reaction was, whoa, that sucked. You know what? I'm going to be Batman and I'm just going to fight crime. Yeah. And, and that's about it. Whereas when I first – when I read my first Spider-Man comic – and the whole Marvel style was different. But even within that whole difference of style, Spider-Man I think really stood out. There was this guy who just – I mean his whole reaction in the earliest comic books was, this is weird. I don't know that I necessarily want to do this. And nobody likes me anyway. Nobody likes me in my real life, and nobody likes me as this. And the papers are running, you know, editorials about how what a menace I am. And I must be. There's a scene in one of the early comic books where he swings through the window of a psychiatrist, ties the psychiatrist up in his web, and demands to have a session about like why he would be doing such a thankless and incredibly dangerous job for which he is not remotely prepared. And to me, being an insecure, nerdy, weird little kid, yeah. this was so empowering. Yeah, I hear you say, yeah, so take, take, the, take the ball. Absolutely. I mean, Peter Parker was a nerd. And, you know, he was getting bullied at school and the girls weren't paying any attention to him. And, and, it, and in a much more developed and, and multidimensional way than, you know, Clark Kent sort of, you know, stumbling, trying to impress Lois, you know, they did have that element a little bit, but what Marvel really did is it said, you know, what if we could treat these characters as if they're real people with just these extraordinary powers, but they go through the same kind of things that we go through. And then, you know, the innovation of Spider-Man about the same age and about the same profile as the people who were buying the comic books, because you and me, we were the little nerdy kids, you know, who were going through the, some of the same things that Peter was going through. And here we were able to say, see it, you know, on the page, it was almost like, you know, if you could have made Hol holding Caulfield a superhero or something. And, and that was a real innovation that Marvel brought to the table really early on. We're talking about the beginning of the 1960s that Stan Lee and Steve Ditko were creating these, these comic book characters, probably Steve Ditko much more than Stan Lee, to be honest with you. But, um, that was exciting and that was interesting. And what these movies do, I think even more than the other you know, entries in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is they really retain that sense of that, that this is, 
you know, about these relationships between these teenagers who have troubled and, and difficult things going on with their families and their and their relationships and all of that stuff. It It's just a really great story above and beyond anything else. Right. You know, and Sean, we all read this uh, long article in The New Yorker by Michael Shulman. It's a great article. Uh, it's about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, of which this is technically not a part. Um, but uh, And it's a little bit about Marvel fatigue. But it's also about this this kind of paradigm shift where Marvel started uh, a process that's now more widespread where it's really about the IP, right? It's, uh, this is what Shulman argues. It's about the, it becomes more about the IP than the stars you can get. You know, you either you can get the stars, you can not get the stars. I mean, Robert Redford and Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Angela Bassett and Anthony Hopkins and Glenn Close, they're all in these Marvel movies. But, you know, with the exception of maybe Angela Bassett, it doesn't really matter that <laughs> like other people could be in them for all anybody cares. It, and it really is like, how do you develop stories? How do you develop excitement? And that that's kind of crossed over into other things. And then the other thing that the piece make, the other point that they make that's important, I think, and then I'll just let you vibe off of it, is the notion that character universes are not that stable, that, you know, Spider-Man can turn up, you know, in Iron Man's or Tony Stark's living room or Thor can, you know, wind up, uh, you know, in a outer space prison with Hulk or whatever, you know, that, that everybody can visit everybody else's world. Doctor Strange goes everywhere. And, and that, you know, it's sort of like if you if on if Shakespeare could if like Richard III could show up, you know, on the set of Much Ado About Nothing or something, that would be like really interesting. <laughs> Nobody's ever really tried that before. I don't know. What did you make about all the arguments that were made in that piece and maybe how they apply to this, too? You know, you know I largely agree with it. Um, like the, the point about like how sort of Marvel has just sort of just absorbed all actors in Hollywood, whereas like like they made the point that like you can it's an easier time pointing out the conscientious objectors who wouldn't participate in a Marvel film than the ones who do because they have everybody in these movies. And it uh it's funny how it applies to this movie because you know, in animation there's been a lot of complaints um over the years about like how they just go to get stars to, to voice these characters when they used to be uh, uh, a space for voice actors. But I feel like these movies, the Spider-Verse movies, do a great job of like making, like, it, it doesn't feel like it's just like, oh, we got wanted to get the biggest name we could get. It's like they're getting good performances. But as far as um the, uh, the like eliminating what a star is, I think that's sort of like the, the sinister corporate undercurrent of all this is like, you know, even like the multiverse of it all, right? Like, there's so much speculation that they're gonna either have bring Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man back in future movies or an alternate universe version of uh, Iron Man, uh, Tony Stark, who's not Robert Downey Jr., he's a different actor, so that way you can keep that character going on perpetually until the end of time without ever having like, so you don't really care if it's Robert Downey Jr. anymore. But it's like, there's value in movie stars, there's value in connecting with these people, but they, it's, it, it's like a as a from a money making standpoint. It's like I don't want to have to pay this guy a bunch of money. If I make it so that anybody can play this character, then uh, and and you know if you say you don't want to do you know nine years worth of movies to do this, I can just say you know I will just replace you with a different actor, and no one uh, no one will care at that point. <laughs> well, yeah, I think the article said people go to see uh, Captain America, not Chris Evans. Although Tracy, I also feel like particularly like these movies, I don't know how many days. Brian Tyree Henry spent 
in a sound booth? I'm guessing three. <laughs> uh, <laughs> something along. He didn't like. It wasn't like he had to go to Croatia and get fitted for a costume and sit in a trailer for weeks and weeks and weeks. So that you know, I mean, yeah, Julia Louis Dreyfus does these little walk-ons in in MCU movies, and she probably gets a lot of money, and then she could be in a Nicole Holofcener, you know, picturing <laughs> for scale or something. I, I mean, there's a way to do this. The problem is. Yeah, we haven't seen Benedict Cumberbatch in anything for a really long time because it just takes a lot of time to be Doctor Strange. So I don't know. I'm, I, I, give me your thoughts there. So here's the wild thing is that until reading this article, I didn't know that Benedict Cumberbatch was in a Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to duck my head on that right there. <laughs> you just thought he had COVID or something. That's why you haven't seen him anywhere. He had long so, COVID. But I, I have kind of wondered, I'm like, oh, he hasn't been in anything for a while. And you kind of sit there <laughs> like, oh, you know, whatever. But um, it is interesting, you know, as I read the list of, you know, really certifiable stars who have been in Marvel movies where it didn't have to be them. It, it really kind of surprised me. I think there was, it was Anthony Hopkins that was like, yeah, I sat there and just like screamed a little bit. And it's kind of like, he's such a phenomenal actor. He's Hannibal Lecter. Like you can't be... And I'm sorry, Sean, Marvel, and all Marvel fans, you can't be wasting that talent. That's what sort of hurts me a little bit, is that, you know, you don't have to have these incredible actors for some of these roles, unless it's a voiceover, like, you know, in in this particular movie where the acting voiceovers really have to carry it, and they do carry it. But I feel like, you know, swimming around in some combat and standing around yelling probably doesn't require as much. And yes, they can probably be in and out on some of these things really quickly, you know, especially with a, an animated version. Um, you know, there's no hair and makeup except for the the woman in the convenience store. But right. um, it's just I it was fascinating to see how it really has sucked up so much talent. Yeah, although, you know, I didn't buy it when Shulman said the thing about, you know, generations now know Tony Hopkins as uh, as Odin. Rather Better than, not. Uh, you know, I mean, first of all, as he himself says in the article, look, I get in front of a green screen and I yell, it's not acting or anything like that, and then I'm done, you know, and, and <laughs> pay him $800,000. <laughs> and then he can go do whatever, whatever he wants. And But the thing that intrigued me, Bill, and I, but I don't buy it, is the idea that uh, there's some Asian quoted in the piece who says that Marvel kind of breaks these people, you know, that Robert Downey Jr. hasn't really had any interesting projects while he's been Iron Man, though he did do kind of an interesting documentary about his father or, or like work on an interesting documentary about his father. But uh, And, you know, I just saw Tom Holland in some Apple thing where he's like some weirdo and I just thought... Oh, Crowded Room. Yeah, Crowded Room. I yeah, it's actually of it. kind of good. Is Give it a good? chance. Yeah, okay. Yeah. After one episode, I was thinking, ah, you know, my life... First episode, not great, but yeah. I think it'll, it'll go some places. But that's sort of, you know, it's an interesting question. Look, Patrick Stewart was freaking John Luke P- Picard, and then he was Professor Xavier, and he's, then he's John Luke Picard again. But he still, he does like Beckett on Broadway, and he right. does a lot of stuff. I, I don't think it's necessarily true if you're really committed to your career that it's going to break you to get over-identified. I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't seen Mark Ruffalo in a lot since he was the Hulk. But I think I can watch it. <laughs> That's the problem. Like you, like you, almost arguing against yourself because once you start going down the list, you're like, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of <laughs> like, I'm not sure. Mark Ruffalo has health problems. Yeah, so. that could be it too. I think that might be more correlation than causation. You know, I mean, I think I could we could point to other people who have not been associated with Marvel who have gone into lulls. 
Uh, didn't Nick Cage go into like a, a long lull uh, over time? That's a three-hour uh, conversation. There's no I, way that we can handle that as a throwaway. No, but as we speak, I'm working on my uh, Lear versus Petruchio script because I think <laughs> your idea was a really good one. And I'm really hoping to get Cage to play Lear. So we'll see okay. how that works out. Yeah, I don't necessarily buy uh, that aspect of the argument. Like, what would be the explanation? Why would appearing in these films break them in any way? Okay. Can I offer yeah. uh, a reason? Yeah. It, it's because you're not allowed to... Uh, you don't have the time to shoot these other movies. Like, mm. Marvel's schedule is so... It's a rolling schedule. So it's like, you might shoot a scene for Doctor Strange. You might be on set in Atlanta at the studio, Pinewood Studios, for like four months, right? And then they had to had you come back for reshoots. And then they, you might they might have you do a small part in another person's movie that you weren't necessarily planning for. So... So many people have to drop out of movies because of scheduling conflicts, because this this thing takes up your entire life. Like that's part of the reason we're not seeing Benedict Cumberbatch and stuff. Is because like when do you have the time? And like and a lot of these guys like want to just like get the big paycheck and quit and then go do other stuff. But by that point, it's like nobody wants to see you. Like you contributed to the the death of like the mid budget. Uh, adult drama that you would have starred in five years ago if you didn't star as Doctor Strange or whoever. So then that movie doesn't exist. Or you go perform in that part and nobody goes to see it in the theater because they want to go see Marvel movies. Right. Okay, so we have to stop Well, there. that's the bigger question right yeah. there, just yes. at the end there. Right. Yeah, yeah. we have to stop now. Uh, when we come back, we will talk about uh, Nicolas Cage's new performance as Lear. <laughs> Low winds, crack, crack your cheeks, rage. Blow and put the bunny back. Put the bunny back in the box. Put the bunny back in the box. All right, we'll be back. If he ain't me, he's just a creeper crawler. Touch the spot the lighter. Pull up in a new Ferrari spider. Spider web necklace with the diamonds. You turn the spider woman up a biter. I will not go back and forth with you. I see you got the black widow with you. You should have had a black hero with you. I get an operatophobia. I've been lit since I flicked the lighter. Since I was an instant business spider. They've been trying to wash the spider out. I got spiders crawling out your mouth. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. So our friend Dan Coyce uh, at Slate Magazine um, did a piece um, in which he sort of looked at the whole idea of 
off hours. Let's just say you're working a certain number of hours, you're sleeping a certain number of hours, and then there's the so-called discretionary time. Uh, there's, I think, a perception these days that discretionary time is being eaten into. Uh, one reason they call it slack is how little of that it cuts you. Uh, you are always tethered uh, in certain ways to, to your work. And so to explore this, and I wouldn't say I love Dan Coyce. I don't think he worked like super hard on this piece, but uh, <laughs> he got in touch with some people who were more or less his age, late 40s, I'd say, uh, and asked them some questions about sort of what they remember about their off hours when they were, say, about 27. Uh, and uh, so Sally said, you'd email to make plans. I didn't have a personal email address. You used your work email, which was stupid. Uh, and people just talked about sort of how – what unstructured time is like. I don't know. I'm not – Bill, maybe you can do a better job than I am. But they, they were characterizing a world where you could make up your unstructured time as you went along, uh, not worry too much about squandering it, uh, not have a minute-by-minute plan for how to maximize your off hours. I don't know. What, what hit you about this? I think for me the heart of this article is that we can never carve out any boundaries anymore because all of the technological devices that and and platforms that we're so dependent upon they erode those boundaries and i think a lot of us feel that there isn't a real separation from work life and home life or work life and 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 private life because you've you've always got this thing with you you've got you know this this thing in your pocket that allows the boss to find you and that allows them to um act as if you're kind of always on the clock and that there's some real prices to be paid in certain professions if you don't respond in kind now i also think that in some ways these things have made certain things a lot easier you know i think about you all trying to work on this show and trying to do, you know, multiple new shows every single week, I'm sure there are times you need to talk to each to get in touch with each other over the weekend or in the evening, because otherwise it would be impossible to try to get the show together by one o'clock. If, if you had, if you didn't have that opportunity, I don't know how you would have done that in the past, but I also know because like you said, you and I are the oldies. Um, I've been working long enough that, you know, I did work in an era um, before there even email was being used uh, as much as it is now. And there was something really, really beautiful in my case about not, you know, getting grade complaints from students at, you know, midnight <laughs> on a Sunday evening. Although, let me just stay with you for a second on this. I, our t- okay. clock, clock's a little bit tight, but I've noticed you, you teach more students than I teach, but I do teach uh, undergraduates. What I've noticed is they are fully cognizant, I think, of this problem and they structure their lives. Like I, I rarely hear from my students on the weekend about anything, you know, uh, and I, I often – they often hand in stuff on Fridays so they won't have to think about it over the weekend. Uh, I think they're aware of the incursions on their lives. The, the smarter ones anyway are thinking – Okay, so how can I make it not like that? And I would say in some ways, Gen Z, uh, they're very protective in, I think, a pretty healthy way of their off hours. 
I think you and I teach at really different institutions. It could be. And, and I'm not trying to slander my students in any way. No, I love my students. But we do get a lot of, you know, middle of the night emails. We get a lot of weekend emails uh, from advisees and, 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 and things of that nature. And um, so that hasn't been my experience. Um, it's been more sort of, um, and, and by the way, and this is important for me to, to say, it's not just students, it's colleagues and administrators who do this as well. And I think we're doing a really bad job role modeling for the students of giving people some space. So, you know, Wu, I was thinking reading that too, I was thinking of when I first became aware of your existence um, in, in those glorious days of the cut uh, kind of online <laughs> zine where you were a Asian persuasion for a while and uh, Teresa Kramer, uh, was, uh, uh, who's also a news panelist, was part of that crowd and what your lives were like. And, and of course, you also didn't have little wooettes to uh, worry about uh, <laughs> as you do now. But, you know, it did seem a little bit like the life being described there, which was you could you could waste time, you know, and not feel too bad about it. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I straddle both of these worlds in a way where email was, you know, a thing in college for me. So it was always been a part of my professional life, but it's really evolved a lot, you know, in my early and mid twenties, you know, and even until having kids, it was like, you were able to shut that off, close the computer. They didn't want, they didn't have a computer for you to bring home. You had a desktop. Um, but I also have always worked in nonprofits and some of that in the arts. And so the hours were always different, right? Like when I worked for the symphony, there were always performances or receptions or, you know, things to do with donors, but there still was a very healthy boundary around things. You know, we worked hard. We also played hard. We socialized with each other. And during that time, you know, we didn't really talk about work things. You know, we had one boss, I have to give a shout out to Carrie Hammond, who really made sure that we, did that, you know, that when we needed to take care of things, we took care of things, but things didn't bleed and trickle into other parts of the day or the weekend or life unless it was really emergent, like a giant thunderstorm and, you know, 10,000 people on a field. Um, but as time's gone on, and I think the pandemic is really what exacerbated this, right? Now we're all equipped with things to work from home, um, you know, and so there's a flexibility in it, right? Being a parent, I can run out and grab my kid from school or for a doctor's appointment or, or something like that. And know I can make up the time in the evening and not really have to plan too, too hard. Like, okay, I have to pack these papers and folders to bring home with me to do that work. I have access to everything. So there is a little bit of beauty in there, but at the same time, I can easily open my computer, check my phone, my Apple watch for whatever emails come in and so I need to have some self-imposed boundaries there. And I, I'm not always great at it, you know, my, and that's all on me, right? Like my workplace isn't always the place that has put those pressures on. A lot of it is self-imposed because you feel like this person over here is doing it. So you need to, mm -hmm. but then you have to step back and say, you know what, that person there might be emailing me at 10 o'clock because they had to do something else personal during the day and they're making up time. And so I think that's where, if we're going to see some sort of paradigm shift for essentially a healthier workforce, we all have to keep that in mind that we need to work within our own flexibility and set our own boundaries. And that comes from the bottom up and the top down. Yeah. I, once again, I think millennials, I don't know. I mean, you know, Lily Tyson is the senior producer of the show will sometimes say to me firmly because I have no life and I'm a workaholic. 
uh, have a nice weekend. <laughs> and what that means when it's typed a certain way on Slack is please stop talking. It's five o'clock on Friday. I do not want to know anything about you until Monday. Uh, and she's right. But Sean, I think the other thing that happens is like how much, I, when I think about it, I think about how much planning goes into recreation now. You know, I'm even going to see a movie, which I hadn't done for a while. And so, you know, you go online, you pick out your seat. <laughs> you pick out your seat in advance. Uh, and, and you know, we're thinking all the time, geez, I'm, I'm like, how am I going to knock off all these Secret Invasion episodes in time to do the other thing <laughs> I want to do? You know, there is there is a sense that there's that maybe freedom just to kind of make it up as you go along is diminished. But that also could be my highly anal retentive personality. So I'd love your thoughts. No, you, I think you're absolutely right. I was um, uh, I was watching this uh, interaction on, I believe it was Twitter, and somebody was like, "How did you guys?" It was like a Gen Z person. He's like, "How did you guys like know where to meet up if you if a group of friends was gonna go to the movie?" And you know, the, everyone was kind of dunking on them and saying like, "We would just say, hey, meet at the flagpole or whatever," you know. And <laughs> uh, what's a flagpole? Exactly, that was the next thing out of their mouth. Um, but. I think there was a level of like, um, like we'll just, it'll all work out. You know what I mean? Like we can all believe in the fact that we know where the flagpole is and we know that we want to be there at five and that should be enough. I think like what cell phones and like uh, the internet have done is like create this like, like, like disbelief that we can do things without them. Mm -hmm, You know what I mean? mm -hmm. It's like, like once upon a time, like, if you couldn't get in touch with your friend, you left him a message and that was that. Like, it wasn't like you didn't, mm-hmm. like you didn't or you couldn't get in touch with your professor, you just have to wait till Monday. And, and, it, and it would all work out. Like, I don't know, I'm sure there are plenty of times it was like, hey, it's an emergency. I wish I could get in touch with my mom right now because I have to tell her something. But, how, like, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. I feel like we would just be fine. But then once you are in, the technology is introduced, you develop a dependency on it where it's like, no one wants to go back to even even in recognizing how detrimental this stuff can be to our like personal lives, we don't want to go back to the world without it. One, because they've created a world where if you don't uh, participate in it, then you're completely disconnected from everything going around you, which is all your friends that you wanted to spend time with in your personal life. It's mm-hmm. insane. Right. Well, we have to stop there. Uh, there are uh, many profundities uh, that have been spoken. Uh, and so you're welcome, I uh, guess. <laughs> and we'll come back <laughs> and we'll make some recommendations and stuff like that. I've uh, got to say thanks to Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer. And to Jonathan McPants, who produces this and most knows episodes. Speaking of which, we are currently putting to, get, putting to bed the latest issue of the newsletter, So you can see all the cute little faces of our panelists because we're going to be putting their recommendations up and a little essay by me and stuff by pants, all kinds of things. A grab bag of things from Jonathan McPants and I don't know what else besides. And if you don't get the newsletter now and you need to get it, your smartest move, even though I'm going on vacation and technically should not be doing this uh, per our previous conversation, you can email me, Colin at ctpublic.org, C-O-L-I-N, at ctpublic.org. 
And if you do it before, let's say, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, I will sign you up for the newsletter. Um, and I guess that's all. Oh, also, next week, uh, I will just be taking a little bit of rest time and uh, we'll have some reruns on. But we'll also have uh, a new episode by McCusker called So Bad It's Good. You don't want to miss the So Bad It's Good episode, but I don't know which day it's running. All right. Time to make some recommendations. Bill Usman, why don't you get us going? Uh, what's that? I'm sorry. I was just checking my work email. I, I, <laughs> what did you say? You, just, gave, just you gave me a B plus. That's a callback. <laughs> um, so when the pandemic started, Lori and I began binging great sitcoms that were no longer on the air. And we've kind of kept up the habit. So we've done uh, the first Bob Newhart show, The Office, Parks and Rec, The Mindy Project and 30 Rock. But my real endorsement today is the one that we're currently in the midst of, and it's the Larry Sanders show. Ah! Yeah, I can't it. say enough good things about this. And yes. I'm not the only one, as demonstrated by Colin's reaction. Well, actually, I have um, to say that uh, two weeks ago or whenever it was that Sean guest hosted for me, I immediately said to McPants, uh, Sean Murray is now the John Stewart to my Larry Sanders. Uh, absolutely. But it's a, it's a great yeah. series, yeah. It's a great show. And, you know, it won all kinds of awards. It regularly appears on the list of the best HBO shows ever. It's a really great satire of the Carson, Leno, Letterman type late night talk shows uh, featuring the late, sadly, uh, Gary Shandling, but also Rip Torn and uh, Jeffrey Tambor as his Ed McMahon type sidekick. It was on from 1992 to 1998. It's so funny. It's so sharp. Whether people have already seen this or not, I, I think it's really a delight. And I'm having a great time. And I just want to say, similar to a series like Veep, uh, where, you know, people from Washington say, oh, how did they find out about that? You know, things that the Veep people thought that they made up. Um, Larry Sanders is a lot like that, too. I mean, I worked with Artie. I worked with a guy who was Rip Torrance, Artie. Uh, I, that is not a made-up kind of thing. That's how the, it's that's McPants, how, right? How, it's, no, not my. You're it's, talking about it's earlier in my life. No, McPants is the opposite. He never tries to tell me <laughs> things are any good. All right, so uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, make some uh, recommendations or one or whatever. Oop, is she there, Tracy? I don't hear her. Sean Murray, make some yeah, recommendations. Yeah, that was oh, me. Oh, there Sorry, you that was oh. all me. All oh, right, checking um. work email. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my first recommendation is um, A First Time for Everything, which is a graphic novel by um, the author mm. Dan Santat, who um, graced West Hartford Public Schools with his present for um, AANHPI month last month. But I bought this book for my nine-year-old, and it's just, if we're talking about middle school angst, it was just such a great book for her. I enjoyed reading it, even though it's probably not meant for people my age, and the art is really great. It's just a fun kind of coming of age story um, if we're kind of talking about graphic novels and and Marvel and all of that. It's not Marvel, it's not superhero, but it's a great graphic novel. Um, and the other one is, is that I happen to stop into uh, small state provisions over the gastro park in West Hartford um, and they have some delicious and good cause pride cookies there. Um, a dollar of every um, cookie sold goes to an LGBTQIA plus cause. And so um, I also might have eaten mine and half of my son's before I even saw my son. So uh, <laughs> stop in there. They always have delicious stuff. Fortunately, he's watching across the, uh, the Spider-Verse right now, so he doesn't even make it to that. <laughs> so, Sean Murray, uh, how about you? Well, obviously, I'd like to recommend Across the Spider-Verse. If you haven't seen it, if you have seen it, see it again. Yeah. It's good. Um, I would also like to recommend... Um, this great thriller that came out, I think it was last year, uh, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. I don't know if I recommended that before, but it was um, available on like you know I, uh, the Apple and 
Amazon or whatever, but it's a really tense thriller about uh, a group of, uh, you know, sort of climate activists uh, planning to blow up a pipeline. Uh, it's all in the title. And uh, it's very good. It's, um, I don't know. I just, I just loved it. It's very tense, very, uh, very taut thriller. Um, and I would also like to, one last thing, um, a graphic novel by a writer named Matt Kent called Mind Management, uh, Mind MGMT, as Kent, K-I-N-D-T. Uh, awesome uh, graphic novel with um, really fascinating way to use the page um, to uh, tell the story. Like, there's stuff in the margins and whatnot, and it's a really cool, like, spy thriller with some supernatural elements, but it's really good. So, recommend that as well. Okay, so I haven't been making recommendations that much lately. I'm going to quickly uh, recommend a couple of um, a few movies that are worth catching up with. These are not new movies; two are from last year. One of them is Dog with Channing Tatum. Uh, it's a very powerful story. I haven't re- I didn't recommend these yet, did I? Now I feel like maybe I did do this. To Leslie with Andrea Riseborough, uh, which she was she got a Best uh, Actress nomination out of this. Nobody knew what the movie was. I thought maybe it was kind of overrated, overhyped by Hollywood insiders who you know helped her get the nomination. No, it's very, very powerful. Uh, and uh, Bad Words, which is an older movie with Jason Bateman, and very politically incorrect. There's sort of a lot of things. He, I mean, his character is very politically incorrect. But it's about a guy who's basically trying to sabotage spelling bees uh, for very complicated <laughs> reasons. And it's very funny. So uh, Bad Words uh, to Leslie and Dog. Dog is Channing Tatum as a serviceman who's bringing a combat dog to the funeral uh, uh, of the trainer who, who handled him and having a lot of adventures along the way. And I think I'll see more about this later, but I just want to shock everybody except Cat Pastor, who already knows. So my son and I watched this reality TV show on Netflix called Tex-Mex Motors. It's brand new. It is so good. It was like, I want to just, I want to be a Tex-Mex Motors kind of person. I don't know. I just, I, I never like this stuff. I never like it. And it was so good. Uh, and I mean, I, I have more episodes to go, but it's just great. All right. Also great are Sean Murray, absolutely, Bill Usman, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, and the whole crew here at the show. And I'll be talking to you in the future. Let me tell you, baby. I'll meet you down on a silo across from St. Francis, past the conservatory, up the street from the seminary. You know, it's a very, very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah, <laughs> it's cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that, and talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh yeah, talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Alderbury, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain. Vernon, I already said that one. Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.